From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and the studios of the Chicago Sunday Evening Club, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. On today's show, we go back into our archives and revisit one of the more controversial interviews from our 2012 season. We're speaking today with Dr. Timothy K. Beale of Case Western Reserve University, author of The Rise and Fall of the Bible, The Unexpected History of an Accidental Book. Stay tuned. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. This week on our show, we're going back into our archives and revisiting a 2012 interview with Timothy K. Beale. He's the Florence Harkness Professor of Religion at Case Western Reserve University. And since he and I spoke, he has now become the editor-in-chief of the Oxford Encyclopedia of the Bible and the Arts, which is forthcoming from Oxford Press. But at the time of our conversation in 2012, he and I had gathered to discuss his recent book, The Rise and Fall of the Bible, The Unexpected History of an Accidental Book. Now, I didn't know it at the time, but this interview was going to cause a great deal of controversy for us and for our fledgling show. In fact, without going into too many details, it lost us our first and only sponsor from the local area where we were broadcasting at the time. Now, that's water under the bridge, of course, but I did learn an important lesson at the time, and it had to do with how we title shows, because we chose to call this one, The Bible Does Not Exist. We got that phrase from something that Dr. Beale says later on in the interview, and in context, it meant something very specific. But when this potential sponsor heard it, and when other listeners heard it, they took it to be an affront to their sensibilities. Now, since you're listening to the show, you're no doubt aware that we've chosen to retain the title, The Bible Does Not Exist. And that's not because we wish to offend anyone, but I do think that it's important that we provoke people to think about the objects and the scriptures and the the pieces of religious material that we sometimes take for granted. Now, Timothy Beale's an old friend of mine, and he and I had a lot of fun with this conversation, and I hope that you enjoy it too. Timothy Beale, welcome to Things Not Seen. Thanks. Good to talk with you, David. Thank you. I've asked you to begin today by reading a short passage from your recent book, The Rise and Fall of the Bible, if you would. Sure. So this is toward the end of the of the book, and I uh, was talking about my sort of, my own personal struggle with my own conservative evangelical background with the Bible and going to a Christian college and encountering the the academic study of the Bible and and, and these kinds of things. And so in, in the process, I had begun to discover the Bible in a different way, not in religion classes, but in English classes, especially studying Romantic literature. And so William Blake was was really a great inspiration and continues to be for me in thinking about the Bible in, in different ways. So that's the context for this. For me... Studying religion is about making the strange familiar and the familiar strange. It's about encountering religious beliefs and practices that initially appear unfamiliar, foreign, other, and coming to understand how they can be true for those who embrace and live by them. It's about getting to know the context within which they make sense. But it's also about encountering those religious beliefs and practices that seem familiar to us, in new and surprising ways, whether interpreting them according to new theories and methods or comparing them to less familiar religions. In that process, we often find that the familiar becomes strange. As we become familiar with the strange, as we begin to see ourselves in the stranger, we also may begin to see the stranger in ourselves. A sense of otherness takes root in our own familiar. I never went so far as to join the church of William Blake, and yes, there is such a thing. But for me, 
studying how Blake saw the Bible began to estrange me from what I thought I knew about it. A thousand Sundays hence, I am still drawn to his vision of the Bible as a code of art, not a book of moral guidelines or answers, the B-I-B-L-E, basic instructions before leaving earth, but a body of literature whose spiritual value lies in its power to inspire new creations, new ideas, new ways of seeing ourselves and our world. Not the final word, the end of the discussion, but a locus of Genesis, a deep wellspring of creative meaning-making, with no final word in sight. And that's our guest, Tim Beale, reading from his book, The Rise and Fall of the Bible. Now, the phrase that you have there towards the end of that passage, where you, you speak about not an instruction book and not a book of moral guidelines, I imagine that that characterization of the Bible would be quite jarring to some of our listeners who are used to thinking of it in that sense. What, what was it that really began to push you away from that sense of, of the Bible as a moral guide, a moral teacher? Well, um, I think for, for, for me, like for most people, um, it, it's, that, it's that the Bible doesn't work that way. It's, it's that experience of disconnect between, on the one hand, you know, really believing and, and, and having been taught that, that that's what this is, is a kind of moral guidebook and, a, and a, a book of answers that tells you everything you need to know about this life and, and what to do here and how to get to the right one <laughs> in the next life and um, the right place, that is. Um, and, and so that's the way many of us are, are taught to embrace the Bible. And yet, when we do have really important questions in this life, and we go to it, um, you know, expecting it to speak to us directly and clearly uh, and give us answers and direction uh, to those que- in relation to those questions. Um, that's not what, what a lot of us experience. We get frustrated, and in fact, we find ourselves uh, encountering more questions rather than encountering um, an answer. And so it was that experience of that kind of disconnect between what I believed the Bible uh, is, and and the experience of 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 you know of encounters with it that led to that. And I think that happens for a, a lot of us. Um, I was just back at my alma mater, uh, Seattle Pacific University, where uh, this little story took place, and it was really interesting talking with. Students and I gave a public lecture there and had a conversation with some students and so forth. And um, you know, it, it, you see that dynamic a lot in in, in those circles. And um, and so, a lot, in a lot of ways, this book is really uh, a very personal sort of autobiographical um, book, a self-reflection as much as it is a, a reflection on the way our culture um, understands and and uh, and iconicizes, if you will, the Bible. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Things Not Seen, conversations about culture and faith. I'm David Dalt. We're listening back to a 2012 archived interview from our first season. We're talking to Professor Timothy K. Beale of Case Western Reserve University about his book, The Rise and Fall of the Bible, The Unexpected History of an Accidental Book. Well, you, you mentioned that in your own self there's this tension that you found between the, the expectation of what the Bible sort of should be and should say and what you actually found there. And you mentioned going back out to Seattle Pacific University, and, and in the book you mentioned in your own experience in the classroom, it seems like that tension is present uh, throughout America in terms of the, the disconnection yeah. between the expectation and the actuality. So I guess I have to ask, what in your opinion, is the state of biblical literacy in America today? <laughs> well, and, and you know, that's the, the state of biblical literacy is not unrelated to that disconnect, because I think if you continue to expect the Bible to do that, to provide those answers and give that kind of clear roadmap, um, then when you go to it uh, and get frustrated, it's going to send you away. I mean, you're going to feel alienated from it, and so you're not going to read it. It's not doing what our culture um, tells us it's supposed to do. So that does lead to 
uh, greater biblical illiteracy, I think. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think many of us personally uh, grow up with and, and embrace this idea of the Bible as a kind of book of answers, as sort of God's textbook that he, that he wrote for, for you and me. Um, and and uh, uh, that personal uh, belief about the Bible, understanding of the Bible, um, is not unrelated to the general cultural understanding of the Bible. You know, a majority of people believe that the Bible has all of the answers to life's most basic questions in these Gallup polls and, and other kinds of polls like that. There is a, a there is a general cultural idea of the Bible as this comprehensive, clear, univocal, univocal um, you know, book of answers that that dominates in our society. Um, I call it, in the book, I call it the cultural icon of the Bible because it's really an iconic idea of the Bible that uh, whose relationship with actual Bibles is, is very um, tenuous at, at best. So you mentioned in the, in the book, and to sort of follow on this, this line of thinking about the difference between the icon of the Bible and, and the, the actuality of the Bible, you mentioned in the book that the Bible is pretty much available everywhere and, and for free at that. So if we go to a hotel, it's there on the nightstand next to us thanks to the Gideons. We can go online and we can find versions online. And if we go to a church, the church will happily give us a Bible for free if we ask for it. Right, and yet... Right. You you also you also make the make the the claim that the sale of Bibles today constitutes a multi billion dollar industry and it's growing each year. How is that possible that we have Bibles for free all around us, but we still have Bibles for sale and the industry is growing? Right, it's a great question, and I know it's one that you've done quite a lot of research yourself on as well. I'm looking forward to your book on on, uh, on subjects related to this. But Thank you. yeah, there's this strange um, sort of puzzle here. On the one hand. Uh, we know from the polls and, and just from personal experience, I think, uh, that biblical literacy is really at an all-time low. Maybe it's been at an all-time low for a long time, but it certainly can't get much lower. So on the one hand, biblical literacy is at an all-time low. On the other hand, uh, you have this tremendous reverence for the Bible uh, reflected in these these polls that suggest that so many people see it as a book of answers, as the book of answers, and a reliable book of answers. And at the same time as you have that high reverence, you have incredibly high sales of Bibles. You have more Bibles being being sold and, and more different versions of Bibles being sold today than ever before, and the numbers are growing. So, so there's the puzzle. On the one hand, incredibly low biblical literacy. Um, on the other hand, incredibly high reverence and booming sales of the Bible. So how do we explain that? And I think maybe you know, the, 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 the first answer could be that, in some sense, biblical consumerism is replacing biblical literacy, that you identify yourself as a Bible-believing person and you identify yourself religiously by by what you buy more than by what you read. So biblical, so buying Bibles, <laughs> you know, is in some sense the, the, uh, more important than than reading a Bible. Um, so that, I think that's a that that certainly is part of what's going on. We live in a consumer society, or where we where we are what we buy. If you're just joining us, we're listening back to a 2012 archived interview with Professor Timothy K. Beal. We'll be back in a moment. If you're listening to the show for the first time and you like what you hear, you can subscribe to our podcast on our website or on iTunes. Search for Things Not Seen Podcast in the iTunes store. And while you're there, we'd love it if you took a moment to write a review and give us a rating. That's actually unbelievably helpful to us in getting the word out about the show. If you're on Twitter, please take a moment and follow us at Not Seen Radio. We're also on Facebook. You can find us there at facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And one more plug. If you haven't yet discovered our Daily Religion Moments podcasts, you're truly missing out on a treasure. We have them all archived at our website. 
So if you're just now starting to listen to Religion Moments, you've not missed out on the thing. You can go back and explore the whole catalog just like you were traveling back in time. And thank you as always for listening. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Today, we're looking back at a 2012 interview with Timothy K. Beale, who's Florence Harkness Professor of Religion at Case Western Reserve University. We're talking about his book, The Rise and Fall of the Bible, The Unexpected History of an Accidental Book. Before the break, Dr. Beale was saying that in our culture, we oftentimes make our identities through what we purchase. In his words, we are what we buy. I think there might be something else, though, uh, on a deeper level uh, going on there as well, which is that we really, uh, a lot of us are, are looking for that iconic Bible. And so these Bible publishers know that. They know what people want from a Bible. Um, and they are publishing all kinds of different things and all kinds of different content and translations with all sorts of helps and supplements and so forth as the Bible, as finally that Bible that people are looking for, that iconic Bible, finally a Bible that speaks to me in language that I can understand and gives me the answers I'm looking for. That's what they're marketing. And so uh, here, here's the consumer really wanting that experience, believing that that's what the Bible is, and here's the publisher uh, selling this Bible that's finally going to do that. And so they buy it. But when they start actually trying to read the biblical text, whether it's in this Bible or another one or the next one or the next one, you, they encounter that same disconnect again, that same um, disconnect between you know, what they're reading when they're reading the biblical text as opposed to all the little helps and supplements, and that's a big part of, of your research, David. Um, uh, the disconnect between that, that biblical reading experience and what they think a biblical reading experience is supposed to be like. So they buy more and more and more Bibles, looking for that iconic Bible. So if I'm hearing you correctly, one of the things that is really changing and driving the the shape of the Bible and even maybe changing the biblical text itself is this consumer culture, this I, this ideal that we can somehow uh, recreate our identities by buying the right thing. Am I hearing that right? Yeah, I think that. Don't, don't you think that that's part of what's going on? It makes sense with the way our our culture operates generally, our, our, our very consumer-oriented um, culture in which really identity is something that we, uh, that we create for ourselves through our, our, our consumer choices. Well, I remember uh, back in the 1990s when Britney Spears began carrying a little, a little dog in her handbag and suddenly I saw all these people with little dogs. So <laughs> we can find evidence all around us that this is, that this is going on. If only, you know, Thomas Nelson or Zondervan could get, uh, not Britney Spears, but maybe Taylor Swift to carry around one of their Bibles for a couple of days. I'm afraid that if you give yeah. them that idea, they're going to be on the phone to Taylor Swift <laughs> before too long. And trying to... Oh, I'm sure they've tried. <laughs> Given the fact that there is this disconnection, is it even possible to get back to a state of biblical literacy in American culture? And would that even be a desirable goal to have? That's a great question. I mean, I think sometimes we... We skip over how complex uh, the, the whole uh, definition of biblical literacy is in the first place. What do we mean by biblical literacy? Do we mean just sort of knowing, you know, the basic stories and names and and places and so forth from from the Bible, or what? Do we mean a culture that is really immersed in in the kind of poetic, aesthetic um, pool of imagination that is? There uh, in biblical literature, or or what, and and what does it mean to talk about biblical literacy? We haven't gone here yet, but what does it mean to talk about biblical literacy in a a, a digital networked age where we're not talking about uh, the Bible as a book anymore? And I think, yeah, you're sort of asking, you know, can we go back? Can we get back? And I and I think the the sort of nostalgia to get back to, you know, biblical culture or to um, back to the Bible even um, is really uh, self-deceiving in some ways. I think that's, that's an illusion in the first
Freudian sense of an illusion as, as something that we, we wish were true. Um, uh, it's, it's a kind of wish fulfillment. And I don't think it's possible. I don't think there's any going back. Well, if I'm hearing you correctly, so we have, we have sort of the Bible as the text of Scripture. So mm-hmm. Genesis 1-1 through the end of Revelation, the thing that you could actually sit and read, assuming that people would take the time to read it. But, and assuming we can all agree on the same canon. <laughs> that's a good point, that. too. Um, but then we also have this other thing that you mentioned, this iconicity of the Bible. The Bible is an icon. So the physical object itself, so my grandmother's old uh, black leather Bible or, mm-hmm. or uh, a Bible that I go down and buy at the bookstore because it's going to match my outfit for Easter. So we have <laughs> that, that physical aspect as well. And it sounds like both of those are available for critique, we could talk about the, we could talk about how to read the text and what the proper text is. Your your mentioned a moment ago of canonicity. We could also ask the question, what is the proper shape of a Bible, and 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 can we really define that? And so I guess one of the things that that it leads me to ask is, if we're talking about lots of people buying Bibles but few people actually reading them and learning the Scripture text, what are people actually doing with these Bibles that they're buying? Mm. Well, uh, my experience is I, I had one under my uh, bed stand where I was missing a leg when I was in <laughs> high school. So there's some value. I still have that one. Um, and, uh, yeah, I think a lot of people just have, have, have stacks of them um, or, or, or lay them. I mean, there's, a, there's actually – this is maybe not where you were wanting to go right now, David, but there's also in terms of that kind of iconic – understanding and, and feeling about the Bible, um, the, I think for a lot of Bible believers, let's say, uh, having Bibles around everywhere is important. Having a Bible sitting on your nightstand open rather than under the corner um, <laughs> is, is important. Having a Bible out, having a Bible that you carry with you, even if you don't read it really um, very much, um, there's a there's maybe a kind of um, you know power to that for a lot of people, and it also makes some kind of statement maybe um, to to others for for a lot of Bible believers to sort of be you know constantly in the Word in that sense. Um, so there's so there's that there's that aspect of of having Bibles out and having Bibles around, um, but I don't think that's exactly where you were going with that question. Well, I, I guess I'm, I'm wondering, and, and this is very difficult to say because we would actually have to go out and survey people and find out, sort of watch them as they're actually interacting with their Bibles, but I guess you've, you've begun to touch on, on the answer that I was sort of hoping that we would get to, and that is, you know, when, when we have these objects, and again, not just the one Bible that we've cherished and passed down from generation to generation, but as you've mentioned in the book and just mentioned now, people are going out and buying multiple copies of the Bible and sort of having them around the house, and what I hear you saying is that, is that the Bible partly just becomes sort of a talisman at that point. It becomes sort of a holy object that you have in maybe the same way that Catholics put crucifixes up on the walls, that they want to make right. sure that the object is there, that it can be seen, but you right. don't necessarily interact with that crucifix on a day-to-day basis. You just have it there. Right, right. Not, you don't interact with it anyway as a literary text mm-hmm. that, that you read necessarily, but it sort of marks your space maybe in some sense as sacred, sacralizes your home, mm-hmm. um, may, may have a function uh, like that. And yeah, talisman might not be a bad way of thinking about it. You know, it's, it's interesting because, of course, Protestant culture is highly suspicious of those sorts of uh, objects within uh, Roman Catholicism and, and other um, traditions of Christianity, and yet I think for sure Bibles do function um, that way. I think an, another thing that you are bringing up sort of in between the lines when I hear you talking about, okay, the Bible, there's the Bible, and then there are these Bibles, this tension between um, this really this idea of this thing that we call the Bible, mm-hmm. which doesn't really exist in reality in any singular way on the one hand, and then on the other hand, Bibles. I mean, I, I kind of feel like maybe we should be talking about 
Bible and not the Bible. Talking, you know, a Bible, this Bible, that Bible, rather than the Bible. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're listening back today to an archived interview from 2012, our first season. We're talking today with Dr. Timothy K. Beale. He's Florence Harkness Professor of Religion at Case Western Reserve University. And we're discussing his recent book, The Rise and Fall of the Bible, The Unexpected History of an Accidental Book. As you've mentioned before, we can't agree, Catholics and Protestants, for example, on one standard canon. We can't necessarily agree on one standard translation. We have these multiplicities and varieties already built into the object itself. Is that, am I hearing you right? Yes, absolutely right. And that's just on the, and that is definitely true, but that's just the, the question of the literary content, you know, translation and canon. Which version do you mean? Which canon do you mean? But when we think about Marshall McLuhan's famous dictum, the medium is the message, and we, we, Try to take seriously that you can't separate uh, the literary content from the physical form and the medium and the media technology and so forth like that. Um, we have a, a a radical multiplication of versions of the Bible because then we're talking not only about different canons, different translations, different uh, manuscript versions, but we're also talking about thousands of different physical forms and formats and visual appearances and media technologies as well. And all of that somehow, all of that variety is the Bible. Um, just, it's funny that we, that we think that way. It really doesn't, doesn't make sense in, in, some sense, in, in, in some sort of basic, I guess, really literalistic sort of way. Um, and I think a lot of people do feel that. Uh, when you go on a site like Amazon or Barnes and Noble's books, bookstore site mm-hmm. and look at the reviews of some of these newfangled Bibles, Bible zines and, you know, manga Bibles and things like that, you find a lot of negative reactions to them from conservative, maybe fundamentalist leaning Christians who say, you're, you're watering down the Bible, you're diluting the Bible, you're desecrating the Bible with all of these forms and fancy smells and bells you're adding and so forth like that. Um, and, and, but, and I, I think in some sense I agree because what that is doing is, is diluting this cultural idea or stretching this cultural idea to the breaking point of the Bible. But the reaction of some, some of them, of, of these reviewers would be, we've got to save the Bible. We've got to get back to the original pure, unadulterated, the Bible, right? And the, the fact is that, that we can't do that because uh, there is no such thing as the Bible and there never has been such a thing in the singular as the Bible. And so in the book, one of the things I, I try to do in the, in the second part after looking at what's going on in biblical consumer culture today and so, so on is to... And just sort of say, okay, well, let's try this. Let's let's see um, if we can go back and and if there is a the Bible back there to save. And what we realize, and of course you know this, and I imagine some of your other guests have talked about it as well. The, the further we go back in uh, in history, in the in the history of the Bible, the more diversity we find. Um, we don't find a singular original. Uh, the Bible or canon or even a singular original version of any of the different books that are in the Bible. When we go back in history, what we find, in fact, is is more versions and more diversity the further we go back. And in fact, what most scholars um, uh, believe is that there was a time a little bit later in Christian history and Jewish history where these texts were formalized and kind of fixed and standardized, but that the earlier history of them was uh, was one in which there were multiple different versions of these texts. And we see that in the Dead Sea Scrolls, for example. You're listening to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're listening back to a 2012 interview with Professor Timothy K. Beale of Case Western Reserve University. 
We're talking about his book, The Rise and Fall of the Bible, The Unexpected History of an Accidental Book. And we're using that as a jumping off point to talk about all manner of ways that the Bible is interpreted and used in our culture. You can find out more about the book at our website, thingsnotseenradio.com, and the author's website, timothybeal.com. Well, let's push the envelope on that uh, and, and, and see the other direction, because I'm thinking now of Stephen Colbert, you know, the political satirist on the Colbert Report, and he makes a lot of jokes about Wikipedia and the notion yeah. that you can alter information instantly these days without regard to anything like facts or authority or anything holding you down. Isn't there a danger, though, if we unleash the Bible into the digital realm, if we take it from its covers and just sort of let it free, of a sort of Wikipedia effect where anything can become the Bible and nothing can become the Bible? Yeah, certainly there is that, I guess you could call it danger. I'm not sure that hasn't been happening for the last, during, throughout the history of the printing press and print culture, actually, if you really look at all of the diversity that's already there and the kinds of uh, liberties translators and uh, publishers have taken in reinventing um, the Bible. Uh, but yeah, I think moving into a digital networked culture where uh, maybe there's a little uh, less centralization and less control over uh, even less than print culture, which has already not got a whole whole lot of controls on it in terms of controlling content and so forth. But there, there is that, that same risk and maybe a higher degree of it. Um, it's an interesting question, though, whether what we're, what we're going to be heading into in um, uh, digital network culture is really so radically uh, democratic and, and open uh, to democratic participation of everyone in the sort of creative process and so forth like that. The, there's a great book, you probably know it, uh, by Tim Wu called The Master Switch that talks about how with every new media revolution, there's this initial phase of, of, of you know, sort of jubilant embrace of, of it as a sort of democratizing, revolutionizing uh, sort of um, media uh, medium, and but but that not long after that the the corporations um, find ways to control it, find ways to control that master switch and the gates and the hubs and the access and the control to direct people in you know the interests that they're interested in directing us and so on like that, and and I have to wonder whether some of these large uh, Bible publishers, I, I don't even wonder, I'm sure that they're doing it, are, are very, very actively um, engaged in thinking about how to, uh, you know, control these markets and how to, to um, succeed with their markets in this media technology and even, and even excel in the process. So if I'm hearing you correctly, there's been a shift, and now the, whereas maybe in the past, the interests might have been evangelical in the little e sense of wanting to get the word out there. Now the interest is maybe more towards uh, a, a profit center or a, a margin to, to maintain. Am I hearing you yeah, right? Yeah, I, I have to wonder about that. Um, I don't think that, that those have ever been very separate in evangelical Bible publishing. Um, you know, selling the word and moving product of or not, see, I even said it wrong. Spreading the word and moving product um, go hand in hand. You're listening to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We'll be back with more conversation with Professor Timothy K. Beale about his book, The Rise and Fall of the Bible, The Unexpected History of an Accidental Book, after this. If you're on Twitter, please take a moment and follow us at Not Seen Radio. We're also on Facebook. You can find us there at facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. If you're listening to the show for the first time and you like what you hear, you can subscribe to our podcast on our website or on iTunes. Search for Things Not Seen Podcast in the iTunes store. And while you're there, we'd love it if you took a moment to write a review and give us a rating. That's actually unbelievably helpful to us in getting the word out about the show. And one more plug. 
If you haven't yet discovered our Daily Religion Moments podcasts, you're truly missing out on a treasure. We have them all archived at our website, so if you're just now starting to listen to Religion Moments, you've not missed out on a thing. You can go back and explore the whole catalog, just like you were traveling back in time. And thank you, as always, for listening. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. We're speaking today with Dr. Timothy K. Beal, Florence Harkness Professor of Religion at Case Western Reserve University. Now, this is an archived interview from our 2012 season, and we're talking about the rise and fall of the Bible, the unexpected history of an accidental book. You can find out more about Dr. Beale and his work at his website, timothybeale.com, and our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. Well, to pick up where we where we were just a moment ago uh, with this notion of the the unleashing of the Bible into possible democracy and and possible um, sort of wild abandon, we have to ask the question then, does the Bible still belong to the church or does the Bible now belong to the publishing companies or is the Bible now fully in the hands of the readers? Who's the authority now? <laughs> Who gets to say what and what is not a Bible? It's a great question. I think that... Uh, there are a lot of people who would like to say, we do, whether it's the church, certain churches, certain church leaders, um, whether it's certain publishers, especially the big publishers who are actively uh, seeking ways to uh, you know, harness the power of the Internet and so forth to continue to monetize the Bible in ways that, that work best for them. Um, and, you know, the thing is, it isn't anybody's, or it isn't the church's even, I would say. In fact, I think in, in some really fascinating and wonderful ways, the Bible never really has, the Bible has always been a kind of <laughs> thorn in the flesh of the church, um, because it's there often in, in, in problematic ways in ways that interrupt the church with a prophetic voice, with a countercultural voice, with a, a counter-voice um, that, that challenges and, uh, and disrupts uh, organizations of power within the church and uh, consolidations of power within the church and, and control. And that's wonderful. That's probably why the church is still, uh, at least in some corners, vital and alive, um, because of that tense, generative, creative, and even conflictive relationship with its own scriptural tradition, which is always there um, with it and against it at the same time. And we are always struggling as the church, now I'm speaking from uh, as, 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 as a Christian, as someone who, under, who considers myself a part of the church, we're always struggling with Scripture, too. We don't just simply embrace it or accept it. There are, there are problematic um, things within our scriptural tradition that we need to wrestle with and struggle with and, and even uh, reject. And uh, that's part of the ongoing... Uh, uh, tradition that, that that we're part of, and and in fact, our scriptural tradition really models that kind of ongoing struggle and reinterpretation and new interpretation um, within its own its own canons. Well, that that brings something to mind because toward the end of the book, you actually look at the term religion itself, and mm. you look at it in in terms of its of its word roots. You mentioned two possible Latin roots, in fact, for the word. And if I if I mispronounce these, I apologize. Uh, Ray, I won't know. <laughs> Ray Ligare and Ray Ligare. Do, uh, am I on track there? Yeah, that's about right. Uh, Ray Ligare and Ray Ligare, okay. and there it's it's uh, you know Ray Ligare R E L I G A R E. That that lig in there is where we get words like ligament. Mm. And religare means to uh, bind again or rebind. Um, 
relegare, which is related to religare, the leg and the lig are related, mm-hmm. uh, means to reread or to read again. Um, because when we read, we're connecting or binding uh, one letter to the next, one word to the next. There's a sense in which reading is a kind of linking of, of words. So that's the connection between the two. But I think for, for, for a lot of us, um, we think of religion and the Bible's place in religion in terms of that, that understanding of religion as a binding or a rebinding, that religion is about binding ourselves to a tradition and binding ourselves to a set of rules and authority structures and so forth, um, and that's religion, religion in terms of the binding. But if we think about it as rereading, I think it opens up something something very empowering, Um to think about religion as an ongoing process of rereading tradition and reinterpreting tradition, creating new meanings on new horizons in relation to these inherited texts and traditions. Uh, religion as rereading, religion as a, a process of creative, generative meaning making in relation to tradition. I like that a lot. I think that that opens up a lot for many of us. And we can even put those two uh, possible roots of the word religion together and say that in some sense religion is about being bound to a community, being bound to a tradition, and being bound to a scripture that we are at the same time bound to reread and reinterpret together. Um, in ways that make new meaning in relation to new historical contexts. Well, in the way that you're you're framing this, uh, you sound, if I may, like a good postmodern interpreter, uh, a, a person who has been well steeped in in uh, I guess sort of a a post liberal way of of reading. But you mm-hmm. and and you also just a moment ago uh, self identified as as a Christian very 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 mm-hmm. vehemently, but. Um, when you were growing up, you mentioned in the book that you were raised actually not in a postmodern context or even a post-liberal context, but rather in, mm-hmm. a, in a pretty conservative evangelical household. Do, do, yeah. you, do you still consider yourself an evangelical? Um, I don't think any, um, very many. I, it depends on how you define um, evangelicalism, sure. but I think according to most uh, evangelical conservative self-understanding that's out there, uh, I probably don't fit the the identity, but I I feel very much indebted to that tradition. I um, I think what I have um, taken from it and what I owe to it is a real uh, uh, kind of um, desire to be self-reflective and self-critical, self-examining. I think that that's something that evangelical. Uh, tradition, conservative evangelical tradition, um, really values, uh, and and also a, a real attentiveness um, to the details of texts and the details of traditions, and a, a seriousness about interpretation and reading closely. And in fact, I think that that, which isn't necessarily all evangelical tradition, but it's certainly there in what I would call conservative evangelical tradition, mm-hmm. which maybe is closer to what most people would describe as fundamentalism. But within that tradition, that close, intense attentiveness to the details of the text, really that's part of what led me to, into an interest, into an openness to a lot of the philosophy and theories of language and literature that get lumped together as postmodern um, uh, theory or postmodern philosophy or something like that, and some of it I'm much more drawn to than 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 others. Uh, but uh, there is within certain strains of, of that area that 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 uh, tradition of thought, especially in someone like the philosopher, the late philosopher Jacques Derrida, there is this this really um, uh, you know, uh, intense, passionate attentiveness to the details of the text and uh, paying attention to the ways these details can 
uh, actually undermine the kind of big sweeping interpretations that we might want to make, you know, big statements about what the Bible says and so forth. And, of course, it's no accident that Jacques Derrida um, uh, was Jewish and drew on his own Jewish background in, in his very exegetical approach to reading philosophical as well as religious texts. So something about that conservative evangelical background really is is a lot of what drew me, and I think many others as well, to um, to some of these uh, theories of language and literature that get called uh, postmodern. Well, I, I, I'm hearing very clearly that you find that background to have been a positive, maybe even a, a blessing in in terms. Oh, very much. But but I would wonder: is there anything about your evangelical upbringing that you would also find as a hindrance as you are interpreting the Bible or acting as a professor of religion? Well, yeah, and that kind of comes right back around to where we started with my discovery of William Blake um, and and with what I had described as a kind of disconnect between, on the one hand, what I thought the Bible and religion were about, which is basically morality, and oftentimes, uh, by the way, sort of obsessed with uh, sexual morality more than anything else, um, on the one hand, and then my experience of reading these biblical texts that really seem to... Uh, fly in the face of, of that understanding of the Bible and religion. Um, and for me, uh, William Blake really really opened something up. There was, a, when I discovered him, especially in college, I'd read like a little bit of Blake in high school, but really, really started to dive into his texts, his works, really, because they're not just textual, they're visual as well. But um, and, and, and just this sort of mad, crazy, visionary strangeness in these texts that felt like something I'd never encountered before. And here he was saying, you know, I, I get all of this from the Bible. This is, this is biblical. In fact, he understood himself to be a prophet in the biblical tradition and his own work to be prophetic work in that same sense. Um, and, and that was, I was like, what, you know, what Bible is he reading? And it sent me back to the Bible with new eyes. He has this great line in a, a single-page piece that he that he published at one point that said, "If religion uh, is it religion or Christianity? I'm not looking at the quote. If morality was Christianity, Socrates was the savior. Mm. If morality was Christianity, Socrates was the savior. In other words, recent." <laughs> Christianity is not about morality. It's it's about vision. It's about seeing the world in new ways. For Blake, it's about a kind of apocalyptic vision, not in terms of the end of the world, but in terms of a kind of revelatory uh, perception of the world that unshackles us from, you know, the, the constraints of, of, of reason and rationality and um, the, the bifurcation of everything into good versus evil and opens us up to something much more radical, um, which, again, sounds kind of postmodern, does it not? But that <laughs> it does, was yeah. A, <laughs> that was a couple of centuries ago. Um, and uh, uh, that really grabbed me. If, if, if morality was Christianity, Socrates was the savior, uh, because Socrates would be a lot better. The corpus of Socrates, uh, of Plato's dialogues with Socrates, would be a lot better corpus of of uh, moral code than the Bible could ever be. Mm. And that, again, so it's that, I think what I struggle with from my own background is that uh, this heavy emphasis on religion as morality, um, and and that's maybe what what I push against the most. But at the same time, I think that the seeds of the deconstruction of that understanding of religion are right there within evangelical tradition, especially in its emphasis on self-examination, uh, questioning oneself, and its emphasis on paying attention to the uh, to every detail, um, every jot and tittle um, in the text and in, in the tradition. Well, you, you mentioned in the acknowledgments that this was a very challenging book to write, do you mind telling yeah. us why that was the case? Well, um, for a 
lot of reasons. One, just uh, the, the challenge of having to learn some new discourses, especially around business and marketing and, and publishing, the, mm-hmm. you know, getting to know the publishing world and doing research into that um, was completely uh, new for me. Um, I think also uh, because it, it, it called for, in my, in my experience, it, it called for a lot of self-examination um, and looking into my own, my own story, my own life in Bibles, and seeing how it, you know, uh, intersected with, that, with the larger story that I was trying to tell. I think, too, um, that, that a struggle there is, you know, writing a book that I know that a lot of, let's say, my people, a lot of people in the, in the circles I come from will not appreciate. Um, but at the same time, doing it because, you know, it's important to me to, to work this out and to, um, to articulate my own tense, uh, conflicted relationship with my own, with my own tradition. And that's always hard, um, when you're thinking about, you know, who's going to be reading you and how they'll, how they'll react. But I also believe that there are other people like me, uh, in those circles who, are raising a lot of the same questions, and uh, I wanted to speak to them, um, especially. And I've gotten a lot of good feedback from folks, a lot of emails and letters, and 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 so on from from people who've um, who've appreciated that. So it's been nice to to find a little community um, in the process of, of struggling through that myself. Well, Tim Beal, thank you very very much for being with us today. My pleasure. It's really nice to talk with you. Thanks. We've been listening back today to a 2012 archive interview from our first season. We've been talking with Timothy K. Beale. He's Florence Harkness Professor of Religion at Case Western Reserve University. And we were using the interview as a context to talk about his book, The Rise and Fall of the Bible, The Unexpected History of an Accidental Book. Since our conversation, he's also taken over the editorship of the Oxford Encyclopedia of the Bible and the Arts, which will be forthcoming from Oxford University Press. You can find out more about Dr. Beale and his work at his website, timothybeale.com. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC, with the support of the Chicago Sunday Evening Club. Today's show was recorded at KWAM News Talk 990 in Memphis, Tennessee. KWAM is not responsible for the content of this program. Additional production for this week took place in the studios of the Chicago Sunday Evening Club here in the Chicago Loop. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keja. Jeff Krause engineered the show. Kim Tron and David Dahl did the editing. Our staff includes Travis Abels, David J. Dunn, Natasha Alford, and Alexander Badenoch. Katie Scroggin is our senior producer. You can follow us on Twitter at Not Seen Radio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about upcoming guests. That's facebook.com slash things not seen radio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and hear extra audio from our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith.